On May 6th this year, Operation Golden Orb will commence. It's been planned for decades. It draws upon a millennium of tradition. It will be executed with absolute precision and will be viewed by billions around the globe. What am I talking about? It's the coronation of King Charles III. <laughs> This will be the moment when the crown is placed upon his head, the transfer of, of title and powers will be complete, and he will formally assume the role of the head of the Church of England. However, it's not necessary for a monarch to be crowned to be king. Edward VIII, Queen Elizabeth's uncle, was king for almost 11 months without ever actually undergoing the coronation ceremony. And Charles has been king since September 8th when his mother passed away. But King Charles III will not be crowned king for another 34 days. Yes, he's currently the king of the United Kingdom, but he's not been crowned. That will wait until that procession which begins at Buckingham Palace on May 6th, and finishes at Westminster Abbey with him processing to the front of the church and being set upon the throne and the Archbishop of Canterbury placing the crown upon his head. This morning, we continue our journey through Luke's gospel, his account of the life of Jesus, and we're going to reach a climactic moment in the story of Jesus, a moment where Jesus, the King of Kings, processes not into Westminster Abbey in London, but into the temple in Jerusalem where a crowd of people will declare him to be the true king. He's always been king, but this is the moment when people declare that this is reality. And we refer to this as Jesus' triumphal entry, and we celebrate it every single year on this Palm Sunday. My name's Ellis, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you too to this Palm Sunday worship service at Chapel Hill. Thank you for choosing to worship with us today or to join us online. We're going to look, as I said, at Luke's account of that momentous day. And kind of ironically, Luke's account contains no palm branches. It doesn't actually contain an entry into Jerusalem. And there are no shouts of Hosanna. But Luke's account does contain a definitive case for why Jesus is the king that God's people had been waiting for. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. I'd love to invite you to grab a Bible or grab a Bible app on your phone. There's Bibles in the pews. If you do grab the pew Bible, it's page 878. You want to follow along, we're going to kind of take it verse by verse as we go through it. So it's Luke 19 verse 28 and following, page 878 in the Pew Bibles. And I'm going to share with you out of this passage five covert ways that Luke tells us Jesus is king. Five kind of hidden ways that this passage shows us Jesus is king. And I'm indebted to the work of former Whitworth Professor James Edwards for helping me to discover the, the thinking behind these points. So let's read together. We're in Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read from verse 28 through 34. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, 
Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told him, that he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the city of London, much of the property that's on the housing market is uh, purchased under, under what is called a, a leasehold arrangement. When purchasing this type of property, you do not become the full owner. You purchase the building, the property itself, but the land upon which the property sits belongs to the true owner, the original owner of the property. And more than that, you only own the building for a period of a lease. Normally, this is quite a long time, like 99 years or something like that. But once that lease has elapsed, the building, the property returns to the true owner. Now, I'm sure that sounds crazy to a lot of us who live here in the Western United States. Like, why on earth would you want to own land or own property that you don't really own? That doesn't make sense, right? But it's very common in London. In fact, more than a third of all of the property purchased in London is under this arrangement. The owners of the cult in our passage were leaseholders. The passage says that they were its owners, but when you dig a little deeper, you come to realize that the real owner of the cult, its true master, was Jesus. And this is the first of five covert, hidden ways that this passage shows us Jesus is king. And the first one is this, Jesus is creation's king. As Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, that's a journey that began back in chapter 9. Ironically, that was where we were last week. We just skipped ahead 10 chapters. Don't worry, we'll go back to chapter 10. Jesus is reaching the culmination of his earthly ministry. This will be his final week with his disciples, and it will finish with his death. And three days later, his resurrection, which we will celebrate next Sunday on Easter and as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he sends two of his disciples ahead of him to a village and asks them to get a colt. That's either a, a young donkey or a young horse upon which no person has ever sat. And Jesus instructs his disciples, take a look at verse 31. He says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now that phrase, the Lord has need of it, could just as easily be translated from the original language, its Lord has need of it. In other words, the Lord of the cult has need of his animal. And yet when we find the disciples going to get the cult, the people who ask them, what, what are you doing? Why are you untying this, this animal? The passage calls them the cult's owners or in the original Greek, lords. It's the same word, kyrios. In other words, this cult is a leasehold cult. Its lords, who are really the leaseholders, are told that the cult's lord, who is its true owner, has need of the cult. And this is the first of those five hidden ways that this passage shows us Jesus is king. Jesus is the true owner of the cult, even though 
it has earthly owners. And by extension, Jesus is the true owner of all created things. Just like the king of the United Kingdom is the true owner of all lands in the UK, the king of kings is the ultimate owner of all creation. Jesus is creation's king. So that's the first covert way this passage declares that Jesus is king. The second happens in uh, the next verse after those I read earlier, verse 35. Take a look down at that. And they, that's the disciples, the two disciples brought it, that's the cult, to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the cult, they set Jesus on it. Now what's interesting here is that this same story is recounted in all the other Gospels. And in fact, Matthew and Mark were written before Luke, and Luke definitely had access to Mark and potentially access to Matthew. And in Matthew and Mark, they record that Jesus sat on the colt, sat on the donkey. But Luke makes a very subtle yet very significant change to the wording of that. He records that the disciples set Jesus on the cult. And this is the second kind of hidden way that this passage declares that Jesus is king. Jesus is the disciples' king. You know, on May 6th, King Charles will be set on the throne of the United Kingdom. He's not going to go sit down on the throne. He's going to be set on the throne by his people. And in the very same way, Jesus, according to Luke, doesn't merely just sit down on the cult, but he is set on the cult by his disciples, just like a king being enthroned. And the fact that the animal is a cult is even more significant when we understand the the prophecy that Jesus was fulfilling. The prophet Zechariah prophesied that God's true king, the one who was going to come and rescue and save his people, would come to his people riding on a cult. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? So when Jesus' disciples, they, they set him on the colt, what they're really doing is they're enthroning Jesus as king. That's the second covert way this passage declares that Jesus is king. He's the disciple's king. A third way is in the the next verse, verse 36. Take a look at it. And as Jesus rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, we often talk about rolling out the red carpet. It's kind of a figure of speech used to designate creating a a, a proper entry for guests of honor at an event. And, And in many ways, that's what's going on here. But there's an even greater significance to it when you know about the anointing of a certain king of Israel that takes place in the Old Testament. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we we met a man called Elijah. And when he met with God on, on Mount Horeb, God said to him, I want you to go and anoint Jehu to be king of Israel. Now, Elijah took his time over it. In fact, it was his successor, Elisha, who actually did the anointing. But when Elisha carried this out, once Jehu had been anointed, listen to what the people who were around him did. We find this in 2 Kings 9.13. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment 
and put it under him. That's under Jehu, the man who's just been anointed king. Every man of him took his garment, put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. They took their garments, put it under Jehu so that he could ascend the steps and be declared king. So when the disciples are placing their cloaks on the road, they surely have this in their minds. Thinking about that moment when Jehu was anointed king, Elisha anointed him, and the people around him spread their garments down on the steps. And they were declaring, and this is our third kind of hidden way, that Jesus was Israel's king. That's what they were doing. That's what Luke's trying to tell us through this passage. When the disciples were willing to offer their garments as a kind of red carpet so that Jesus didn't have to travel across the dusty roads, they were mirroring the people of old, the people of Israel who did the same thing to King Jehu. They were declaring Jesus is Israel's king. That's the third covert way. The fourth one, we'll keep going. Verse 37, and as Jesus was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now Luke here interjects with with a little side comment. You'll see it between the, the hyphens in that sentence. He says, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. And, and as he did with the setting of Jesus on the cult, this is, this is a change that, that Luke makes to, to Matthew and Mark's description of this account. And it's a, it's a really deliberate one, okay? Luke notes that Jesus was already on his way down the Mount of Olives. Mark and Matthew don't mention that. Now, the Mount of Olives was a, a mountain located immediately outside of Jerusalem, just to the east of the city. It was slightly elevated above the mount that, that Jerusalem itself sat on, and there was a, a valley in between. But this wasn't the first time that a king of God was recorded as having traveled on the Mount of Olives. The greatest of God's kings, the greatest of God's people's kings was King David. And in fact, it was prophesied and the, and the people of God at the time of Jesus were hoping and longing and believing that, that God would send a king who would be a descendant of David to sit on David's throne, to be the one who would usher in peace and justice and prosperity like never before. This was going to be the Christ, the Messiah. We've heard about that over the last several weeks. David's kingship was the greatest ever. They looked to David's kingship as a people. And yet there was this one moment in David's kingship, where he was dethroned. His son, Absalom, conspired to remove his father from the throne in Jerusalem. And as a result, David fled. And we find in 2 Samuel chapter 15 that it says, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went. David's dethroned. He flees Jerusalem. And where does he go? Up the Mount of Olives in distress and mourning with his bare feet on the dirt. So when we have Luke in this passage, just making a little side comment about Jesus going down the Mount of Olives, not walking with his feet on the dirt, but riding on a colt on top of garments. Luke is intentionally trying to tell us that what's taking place right here is the very opposite of what happened in David's life. 
And this is the fourth way, kind of hidden way this passage shows us Jesus is king. And that is this, Jesus is the Davidic king. He is the king in the line of David, a king like David. He's the king God's people have been waiting for. And he reverses what took place in that part of David's kingship, where David was dethroned. Jesus is being enthroned, where David fled from Jerusalem. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, where David was mourning. Jesus is coming in in rejoicing, where David went up the Mount of Olives. Jesus is going down the Mount of Olives, where David walked with his bare feet on the dust. Jesus is riding on a donkey on garments. Jesus is the true King of Israel, and he is reversing the defeat that God's people have experienced in the past, and he is being crowned as the true King, the Christ, the Messiah, the Davidic king. That's the fourth way this passage declares Jesus is king. Are you getting the hints that Luke is dropping? You have to know some context. You have to know some past, but it's there. And there's one final way. This one's the most explicit. Up to now, Luke's been hinting, but right now he's going to throw it right in our face. It comes in the the next verse, verse 38. But before we read that, a little more context. When the pilgrims would enter Jerusalem for a, a feast or a festival, like the feast of Passover, that they were going to celebrate this week with Jesus, they would often recite Psalm 118 as they entered into Jerusalem. It was the Psalm Pastor Gunnar recited at the beginning of the service. And there's one verse in that Psalm that Luke is about to quote. And it is this, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when the, the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem would recite this, they would understand that they are the he that this verse speaks about. They are the ones who are coming in the name of the Lord, the pilgrims, and so they are the ones who are blessed. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm coming in the name of the Lord, so I'm blessed, all right? And in verse 38, Luke is going to quote from this psalm and, and record the cries of the people coming down the Mount of Olives with Jesus. But there's one really significant difference. See if you can spot it, all right? The whole multitude of his disciples were saying, verse 38, blessed is, not he, But the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In fact, again, this is another change Luke makes from Mark and Matthew's account. They just quote the psalm directly. But Luke very intentionally changes the object of the blessing. It is not blessed is he, but blessed is the king. In other words, Luke's trying to tell us emphatically, definitively, explicitly what he's been dropping hints at all the way along, and that is this. Jesus is the Lord's king. That's our fifth way this passage tells us Jesus is king. Jesus is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That is the God of the people of Israel. He is God's king. He is the one who has come in Yahweh's name, and he is blessed as a result. So there we have it. Five covert, hidden ways that this passage shows us Jesus is king. He's creation's king. He's the disciples' king. He's Israel's king. He's the Davidic king. And he is the Lord's king. But here's the big question that Luke is trying to ask us through the way he has recorded this event. Is Jesus your king? As I'm sure you're all aware, around 250 years ago, the American colonies decided to declare independence from the British king, George III. No hard feelings. 
But it didn't mean that the people of America were independent of some form of governing authority. In the place of a king, the U.S. now has a president. No, the reality is every nation, every group of people needs some form of governmental authority. And in the same way, every individual person sets some object or some other person or even themselves as the authority in their life, as the one that they're going to bow down to and serve. We all serve someone or something. The question is, who or what are we serving? Some of us are serving money. We're seeking to do all we can to attain wealth. Others might be serving success, seeking to, to win at all costs. Others still are serving popularity, seeking the approval of people. Others are seeking power to, to gain influence over others, no matter who they trample on the way to that. Others might serve pleasure, seeking to attain every ounce of joy and happiness that they can get from this life. Still, others might serve personal autonomy, seeking to reject all other forms of authority beside themselves. But whatever it is, we all serve something or someone. And even if you're a Christian, even if you're a follower of Jesus, you can still find yourself serving someone other than Jesus. I do it all the time. Someone or something is always king in our lives. And the question is, who or what is king? Is Jesus your king? Jesus is the greatest king we could ever ask for. Just a few days after this triumphal entry, he's He's going to lay down his life for his subjects. He's going to die the death that they deserve to die, that we deserve to die on the cross. No other king would do that. He was willing to serve, not to be served like every other king. He was willing to give his life as a ransom for many. Money is not going to lay down its life for you. Success isn't going to give its blood for you. Popularity isn't going to pay a ransom for you. But Jesus did. He is the greatest king we could ever ask for. And as we approach the communion table this morning, I want to invite you to a moment of quiet reflection and, and preparation for partaking in this meal. And I want you to reflect on the question, is Jesus truly king of my life? Or are there areas of my life where he's, he's been dethroned? Maybe not permanently, but temporarily. Maybe not in my whole life, but in, but in a part of my life. Are there little pockets of rebellion where I am pushing Jesus off the throne and putting something else in his Place. And if there are, I want to invite you to bring them to the Lord in the quiet of your hearts, repent of them, and receive the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now to reveal to us if there are any places in our life where we've taken Jesus off the throne and we've put something else 
in his place. Holy Spirit, speak to us, convict us, reveal to us all truth. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrificial death for us. We thank you that your blood was spilt on our behalf. You paid the price for our rebellion, our sin, and that now we are, been, we are forgiven in light of, of what you have done. We are washed clean by the blood. And we receive that this morning. We come to you acknowledging that it is only in and through the work of Jesus Christ that we can come to this table, that we can partake of the body and the blood of Christ and in it be restored and healed and enabled to declare that Jesus is the true King of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
hands together. Sing it out, church. Death couldn't hold you down. Hell couldn't seal your mouth. There's resurrection power in your name, in your name. All the earth cry out with the holy sound. See? 